So my name is Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, so 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where we're at tonight. I am very serious when I say please pray for me every step of the way tonight. Um, I love Corinthians, uh, but I'm usually not in it so deeply that I'm ready to give a message from any passage off the top of my head. So this is about an hour preparation, but the passage is just so enlightening itself that I'm just... I'm just hopeful that the Spirit of God is going to speak. We have some mic runners, so if you have a question, if you have a comment, um, you may have to interrupt me, so just wave your hand, let me know, let them know, and I would love for you to ask easy questions. (laughs) Remember, there's not enough time to study to get all the answers, so be gentle with me, but if you have any comments, uh, feel free to do those as well, okay? So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll start reading in verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Okay, let's stop right there. And I know this is going to surprise a lot of you. But a couple thousand years ago, Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians. And they actually had disputes with each other. Can you believe that? I mean, these are people in the church who call themselves Christians and they have fights and conflicts and tensions. Can you believe that? They they have these issues that are going back and forth where people aren't getting along. And they're doing something very interesting about it. These aren't just minor skirmishes. These are problems that are protracted. And there's different kinds of problems, I think, mentioned in 1 Corinthians that this passage relates to. But, but they're just simple things. There's property disputes. Your dog ate my chicken. Your donkey stepped on my foot. Uh, you owe me this money for this work I did for you. There's these kind of disputes that are going on. And, and the people are, are in the middle of conflict. And they're not really sure how to deal with the conflicts that are going on. To, to set it in context, let's just understand something that's going on. The, the Jews throughout the Old Testament, here into the early times of the New Testament, even as Jesus were, was walking this earth, they had a way that, that, they, would, um, that they would deal with conflict. They, they really had this thing of, if you have conflict with someone, deal with it one-on-one. Privately handle your conflicts. That was just a way that, that they lived their lives. But if that was not panning out and it wasn't working well, the Jews had a way within their synagogues of bringing groups together to say, let's have a little mediation. Let's talk through some things. Let's figure some things out. The the Jews, I I think they did this for a few reasons. First of all, there there wasn't necessarily always the court system as they're wandering the wilderness, right? I mean, they can't just go to court and say, hey, judge, we need you. They had to figure out a way to do it. But more importantly than that is this reason. The Jews, with their high, high view of God and their high view of scriptures, they never wanted to do anything to make God look bad. They never wanted to do anything to call into question this God that they said they loved and they served and this God who was full of love and grace and mercy. They never wanted to give him a bad name. And so they would handle their problems and they would deal with it according to the scriptures and according to just their their social customs with each other. And, and something happened in the culture where the Greeks and the Romans began to accept this. And so here in Corinth, the, the Jews were free to do this. They were under no obligation to, to go to court and sue someone or to take a brother to court. They didn't have to do that. 
But for some reason, the longer they lived in the culture they were in, the more they began to look like the culture they were in. And so for some reason, when issues began to arise, it was no longer this case of let's deal with this privately or let's deal with this in the synagogue courts. Let's, let's get some mediation going. It was, I'm going to get you because you got me. And so Paul comes to them and he says, if you have a dispute, dare take it before the ungodly for judgment? And Paul's doing something that he's done throughout 1 Corinthians. If you've been here at all throughout this journey through 1 Corinthians so far, over and over again, Paul is contrasting wisdom of the world and heavenly wisdom, right? And Paul here is, is appealing to that same line of logic, and he's saying, why would you go to ungodly courts? And in, in the ungodly courts, Paul is saying, they're not basing their decisions on heavenly wisdom. They're using earthly wisdom. So he's talking to these Christians and he's talking to these believers and he's saying, so if you have a problem with a brother or with a sister, why are you going to the ungodly for judgment? Shouldn't you be able to settle this on your own? A few years back, I was in Chicago and um, I think I told you guys the last time I was here that many, many years ago, my first memory of church is a fight breaking out in our church and, and the church split. And we went with a group that left. That's my first memory of, of really being in big church. Well, a few years ago when we were in Chicago, um, I was a part of a, of a smaller church, a new church plant. And we were renting from an older established church that had this big, 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 big building, but very, very, very few people. Uh, but we were st- stuck over in a corner while they had this huge, beautiful sanctuary with 20 or 30 people. Well, the church had used to be about 200, but they fought and some people left, and then they fought and some people left, and then they fought and some people left. So now there are about 20 people, and on this one particular Sunday, we're minding our own business, doing our own little thing in our corner, when all of a sudden police cars just start swarming the building, and we're thinking, what in the world is going on? And these nice church folks across the way, um, a fist fight broke out in the middle of a business meeting, And they couldn't break up the sides, so they ended up having to call the police to come in and settle the matter. And and, and we were sitting there watching all this unfold, thinking, is this like an episode of Cops? I mean, it was just Cops and Springer mixed together, just the most random. Like, these two things don't go together. They shouldn't go together. But the sad truth is, very often they do go together. Very often we as Christians... Not, not just us in this room, but we as Christians, maybe specifically in America. We've, we've, we forgot how to navigate through difficult times. We've, we've tried to handle things on our own or, or in a different way. And so Paul is facing a very similar circumstance here, talking to the Corinthian church. And he says in verse 1 that, and he follows it with, in verse 2 with this. He basically says, shouldn't you bring your disputes before the saints? Verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you were to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? So let's just look at a couple of scriptures. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation, uh, the very end of your Bible, Revelation chapter 2. Paul says this very interesting phrase. Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? What does he mean by that? Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? So first of all, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 26 is where we'll start. This is in a, a little part that um, is being written to the church at Thyatira. 
Verse 26, to him who overcomes and who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them into pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what Paul is saying, what John is saying is, is there comes a time when, when Jesus Christ comes back to set up his rule and authority. And in the millennial kingdom that Jesus is the ruler and he is reigning. And in that time, those who are followers of him, we are co-regents with him. We have rule, we have authority that is given to us by him to rule over and to even judge the world. And so Paul is reminding the Corinthian church, you have this responsibility coming at the end. Do you not know that? Don't you remember that? Jesus has hinted towards it, mentioned it. It's been taught in other places. And Paul says, don't you remember that? You're going to be responsible to judge the world. Big, huge level. Are you not competent to judge trivial cases? One more example. Um, Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. This one's even stranger for me, to be honest. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Now, if you had questions about the first one, judging the world, I have questions about the second one, judging angels, because I'm like, what in the world does that mean? And, and here's, in my brief 10 minutes of studying, my answer is, I don't know. And the reason I don't know is because this is the only place in Scripture that that's mentioned. It talks about um, Jesus judging the angels and, and him having that. And so I guess by implication, because we're ruling and reigning with him, there's a little bit of that. It talks about, obviously, there's judgment of fallen angels in the end times. And that they with Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. So, so there's some of those things mentioned of the judging of angels. But specifically of us as believers judging angels, there, there's, the Bible doesn't say much of, outside of this verse about that. So I can't really explain what that means. I just have to tell you, that's pretty big. Like that's pretty heavy. That's a great responsibility. And what Paul says is two times, do you not know... That, that we're going to judge the world. And do you not know that one day we will judge the angels? And so if we're going to judge the world at a later date, if we're going to judge the angels at a later date, shouldn't we be able to judge our own lives? And here's part of what he's saying. You have the possibility and the potential right now in you to have the same judgment that you're going to have at that later date. Because you have the word of God and you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. So there's no excuse to say, well, I, yeah, yeah, I just. We have the word of God and we have the Holy Spirit inside of us teaching us and leading us. So we should be able to make judgment in 
the trivial things, the things of this world, the decisions we have every day, the commonplace things. So, so Paul is not saying this to, to say this is unachievable. Your, your whole entire life is question after question that there's no way you could ever figure it out. He's saying, no, you have the information. You have the wisdom. You need heavenly wisdom, not earthly wisdom to navigate life. Yet somehow, so many of us can trace back our paths and say, wow, I blew it there. Wow, I blew it there. Wow, if, if I would have only made this decision. And we live in the midst of a society of other Christians that we're putting pieces together and putting pieces together. And, and, and part of my argument is because we're not living in God's wisdom corporately together and we're not dealing with conflict quickly individually personally as god would have us to do look at this next verse verse four therefore if you have disputes about such matters appoint as judges even men of little account in the church i say this to shame you is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. Now, can I just tell you, I have a a little bit of recent experience of a believer trying to sue other believers. I've been in the middle of that a little bit. I've been on the side of that, I guess. I've been walking through some parts where people tried to do mediation the right way, and, and it just didn't work out. And I've heard story after story after story of similar things. And, and, and what Paul is getting at here, and he says it pretty boldly, he says I, to the Corinthians, I say this to shame you. Isn't there somebody in your midst? Isn't there a friend? Isn't there somebody in your midst, Corinthians, that could come and help you make a decision through this? You've got a brother suing a brother. Isn't there someone who could sit down with you and hear both sides of the story and have enough wisdom to make an accurate decision that everyone could agree upon? But Paul says, no, instead, this brother takes this brother to court. And in the midst of unbelievers, it's almost like putting our faith on trial because we don't believe enough in the sovereignty of God to settle our disputes. We have to take it to other people. So what, as I was reading this, what I felt like God wanted me to, to lead us to Um, at at this point off these verses, is a very simple conflict resolution 101 lesson. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 18 real quick. This is is for some of us. Something we've heard many times, we've seen it lived out. But for some of us, this sounds strange. And this simple truth, I believe, lived out well and, and listen, lived out quickly. As a dad, I, I think about this truth being lived out for my children to see at a young age. Conflict resolution. I want my children, let's just be honest, I want my children to see my wife and I resolve conflict well. I know you're surprised that my wife and I have conflict, but I want them to see us live 
wail the moments of conflict. I want them to see what it means for their dad and their mom to disagree, to get in a fight, to blow it, to lose our cool, but to come back and say, no, 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 we don't sweep things under the rug. We deal with the issues we make up, but we also settle our disputes. I want them to see that on other levels. When If I get mad at somebody or somebody gets mad at me, I want them to see their dad take action and make things right and get a pattern in their life to see we can't allow things to, to fester. We can't allow bitterness to develop. We have to deal with the issues. We have to try to seek reconciliation. So Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 says this. If your brother sins against you, or if your sister sins against you, Or if your father sins against you. Let's just say if anybody sins against you. Go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you. And if he listens to you. You have won your brother over. First principle of conflict resolution. Is this. One on one. If somebody sins against you. If somebody does something. And they offend you. And and you're mad. And you're upset. And you're hurt. The first The first thing that you're told to do is not go call up a prayer partner and say, guess what they did to me? It's not to call up your buddy and say, man, I'm, I'm so mad right now. I'm getting ready to take somebody out. If somebody offends you, if somebody hurts you, you go and you try to make it right one on one quickly. Don't allow bitterness to develop. You go to that person and you try to explain it. Try to explain that they hurt you or what they did offended you or whatever. You try to make it right. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother over. Verse 16. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So the second principle is very simply this. If, if the one-on-one doesn't work, do a two or three-on-one where you have a couple of witnesses That you just take with you and you say, I've shared my side of the story with this person. I want you to have the opportunity to share your side of the story. But can we please resolve this before it goes any farther? Don't let it get out of hand. Don't let a vicious cycle of hurt and betrayal and confusion roll. Just deal with the issue now. Just deal with it. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, so the two... Or three on one doesn't work and the person refuses to listen. Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So it says, if you go and it doesn't work one on one and you go and it doesn't work two or three on one, then you go to the church and you tell the church. And and, and let me just, I'll give you the insight of how that works here at Cornerstone. Uh, You know, we have so many people, every time a fight breaks out, we can't stand you up here on a Sunday morning and say, she hurt my feelings. He made me mad. He stole from me. We can't do that. So we have elders in place. We have spiritual wisdom boards that we say, take your problems. If, if you've tried to resolve, if you've biblically went through these first two steps and you're still not getting the resolution that you think needs to happen, then the leaders in the church would love to sit down with you. We have counselors, but we also, if it has to, we have elders who can get involved and say, can we just talk about this? Can we pray about this? Can we find resolution? Can we reconcile? The church gets involved. And then, note, this is Jesus saying this. Jesus says, and if that doesn't work, treat that person like a pagan or a tax collector. 
So here's, here's the principle that, that Jesus tells us. We are to seek reconciliation. Anytime something happens, anytime we're wronged or we wrong somebody, we are to seek reconciliation. But we're only responsible for our own actions, right? We can't make somebody else reconcile. We can't make them forgive or, or whatever or say, I'm sorry. We are responsible for our own actions. And we are to do everything in our power to seek reconciliation. And the result, the response is up to that other person. And so Jesus says, you deal with things like this. And, and if you're hurt or if you've hurt someone, don't allow those things to linger. Deal with the issues. Make them right. And maybe you're a person, you said, but, but you don't know how much that person has hurt me. And, and I forgave them one time, but guess what? They did it again. And, and then I, I said, okay, I'll give you a second chance. And, and I gave them a second chance, and guess what? They hurt me again. And Jesus, isn't there a point where I just can't be a doormat? I just can't let them walk over me. What do I do? I can't forgive them every time, right? There's two different dimensions to that question I want to answer. Let me deal with the first one here. Uh, If you're still in Matthew chapter 18, look in verse 21. Because Peter has a very similar question to Jesus. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, How many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Peter's being really generous. I mean, he's trying to go out there on a limb. He's saying, you know, you you blow it once, I'll I'll forgive you. Two times? Okay. Three times, I'm being really gracious. But Peter says, even more than that, four, five, six, seven? He's like, Jesus, I'm being gracious. Jesus answers. And let me read this whole parable he gives. I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. He's saying this almost unending kind of number. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. I mean, it's millions of dollars. It's a huge, 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 huge number. This man owes tons and tons of money. Verse 25, since the man was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, canceled the debt, and let him go. This man owed a debt he could not repay. He owed so much more than he could ever repay. And he, he fell down in mercy, begging, please forgive me. And the master said, you know what? You don't even have to pay me back. I forgive you. It's canceled. Don't worry about it. Verse 28. But when that servant went out, the one who had just been shown mercy, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Just pocket change. Nothing at all, hardly. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me. He's angry. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all of your debts because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? 
In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. I think what Peter's asking is a, is a valid question. Because I feel like a lot of us struggle with that sometimes too. Don't hear me say this. Don't hear me say, be a doormat and let other people walk all over you. Don't let people take advantage of you in, in, in ways that really bring harm to you or others around you. But, but here's what I am saying. The Bible is very, very clear that forgiveness is not really an option. And, and, and Peter says, I'm being gracious. I'll forgive seven times. Isn't that good enough? And Jesus said, no, no, no. Seventy times seven, over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. You're to show forgiveness. And this is what's at the heart of it. If we have trouble forgiving other people, that reveals we don't really understand what it means to be forgiven by God. Because what what Jesus is saying here is if you understand forgiveness, you understand this, you're not forgiven because you're a good person. You're not forgiven because you've done something. You're not forgiven just because you knelt down and said, I'm sorry, Jesus. You're forgiven because Jesus died on a cross for your sins and you didn't deserve it and I didn't deserve it. Out of his grace, out of his love, he died for us. And so when I say, please forgive me, it's not because I deserve to be forgiven. It's because he bought my forgiveness. And so if I don't deserve it ever, how can I say to somebody else, oh, I can't forgive you anymore. You've reached your limit of forgiveness cards. And so Jesus says you keep extending it. Question or comment? Yeah. It's on. Oh, there we go. <laughs> okay. She had a question, but she's shy. So uh, her question was <laughs> that she, what if somebody, you go to them for forgiveness and do all the steps and stuff, but what if they don't even care for forgiveness? What if they don't even like want to even want to do that? Do Absolutely. you do the steps where you just treat them like a tax collector? Sure. Great question. Great question. So, so like I said earlier, we are responsible to seek reconciliation. We're responsible to go to that person and, and within our responsibility and what we have the power to do, to go to say, I really want to make this relationship right. And, and if I did something wrong, please let me know and, and I'll, I'll apologize and I'll try to make it right. And if they did, say the same thing. But we're, we're not responsible. We can't make them be sorry. We can't make them ask for forgiveness. So we have to do what God calls us to do in our responsibility. And then leave the results up to them and, and just pray and trust that God will work in their heart in, in a similar way. Uh, you know, we do the whole thing in prayer and we, we try to be biblical, but we just say, you know, God, I'm going to be faithful in trying to be right in my standing with this other person and with you, God. But the other person's heart, it's not your responsibility. You can't change that. Another question or comment? Okay, got a few of them. So does that mean when we forgive which is an issue of our heart, sure. that we don't hold anything against them. Sure. But surely we don't keep going back to be abused. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. That's, that's what I was going to say the second part of it is. I'll get to that in just a minute. I, I, I don't think anywhere... I, I, I'll be honest. I think when I was taught some of these things growing up, I almost received a message that said, be a doormat. 
and let people walk over you and abuse you and take advantage of you. And I'll just be honest, we're going to look at a scripture in just a minute. I'm not so sure that's fully what Jesus is saying. I think there's a, a, another way Jesus is even teaching this. And we'll get there in just a minute. Yeah. On uh, verse 17 where it says uh, you've gone through the path of resolution and still nothing resolved. So treat that person as a pagan or a tax collector. Not to be too legalistic, but in spirit, what does that mean? Because obviously you're still supposed to forgive them, uh, not bear any grudges. But what does that passage telling us? That's a good question. Remember, I only had like 20 minutes to study. I just want to remind you guys of that. Um, I think what he's saying is, is, is in a sense, you're not responsible for them any longer. You're not responsible to bear the weight of that person has to change. You're free in your responsibility because you did what, what, what the scriptures and what God has asked you to do. And so for us to just sit there and, and go around and round and round and round and round, I wish they would change, I, I wish they would change. That's not our responsibility. And we could beat ourselves up all day long to say, but I love them and I just wish their heart would change. And, and those things can be true. But we don't carry the weight of that responsibility anymore because we did what God called us to do. Um, I think. Excuse me. Yeah. I have one more question for you. Um, as far as the lawsuits uh, against other believers, how, how does that um, pertain against non-believers? Sure. Because I, you know, sure. there has been lawsuits where. Sure. Absolutely. And, you know, I just sometimes it's on my heart that you know maybe that's not right because I've had believers tell me you know you're not supposed to file lawsuits and I'm like well when it's you know, accident, yeah. someone yeah. gets hurt, whatever, yeah. whatever the case may be. Yeah. So. so, so I think there again, the, the Bible is very clear. Believers to believers. What, what we're supposed to do. I don't think the Bible puts that same, that same, that same bar. I don't think there's the same bar in that. I, I think there's an element to this that, that is still cultural. One of the commentators that I read real quickly in, in referring to this, they, they were just using this in the, in the scenario of what if there's two Christians and, and maybe the two Christians had, had moments of disobedience, they had a season of disobedience. What if it's a husband and a wife and they're going through um, divorce proceedings or custodies? They're like, well, we have to have the courts involved in our society. And so there, there, there can't be this just across the board, this never works kind of, you never go to court for anything. We can't use that. But we try to settle things private one-on-one. I mean, especially that, that, that analogy works great for a marriage. Um, one-on-one, we try to settle it, first of all. Um, but at, when it comes to believers and unbelievers, the Bible doesn't give that, that same bar that it does. Yeah. Hey, Aaron, I just want to say you're doing great. <laughs> and uh, I, I think for non-believers, um, if they don't see the authority in the church then they wouldn't accept any resolution. So that's why you would have to go to court outside of the sure, church sure. for non-believers. Sure, sure. You know, there, even in our society, I think mediation is still there. It's probably not as common as it used to be years ago, but that's still a practice that some people are involved in. But yeah. Aaron, is it possible that verse 6 or chapter 6 is related to what came before? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Now, um, this is a letter. Paul was once in Corinth, and he taught these people the word. And so far, what I'm reading is that he has heard some things about them 
and he is in their face oh, absolutely. about the way they're behaving. Yeah. And there has to be a reason for that, which we don't know yet from yeah. here, okay? Yeah. But I think that, you know, after the business about the gentleman um, in Chapter 5, um, I think he's going on to tell them that they don't have a lick of sense, nor are they in the Word. Hmm. And, and it, you know, all you say is true about you know, judging others and this. And, yeah. and there's a lot in here that, that sounds like Second John, you know, with the, um, with the uh, agnostic teachers. Mm-hmm. So something has happened in this church. Absolutely, yes. And, and it could be that it's just because it's Corinth. Yeah. Yes. So, and, 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 you know, they had the word, but because of where they are and whatever else other forces are on them, They've fallen away pretty seriously. Right. And he's, I think he's just chewing them out. He is absolutely doing that. I 100% agree with you. And, and your first question, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know how much um, we say this around here. The first principle probably of biblical interpretation is the context that a passage is found in is always vital. It's always vital. And so just like you said, this is a letter. So it's not, this isn't a a random string of ideas that don't link together. This links together. And so Paul is writing a letter specifically to a crowd calling out specific issues. And that's why I think he says, I'm ashamed of you. I'm ashamed of the way you're behaving because you know the truth. You have at least parts of the word of God in your hand, part of the gospel and Old Testament you have in your hand and you're acting like you've never heard it. So I absolutely agree with you that, that there's some things that Paul's calling out. You know, in the start of verse of chapter 5, he says, it's reported that there's sexual immorality among you and, and even the heathens don't do this. It's a man has his father's wife. And so some of the commentators are saying that part of the lawsuits, maybe Paul is even calling out, have to do with marital strife. Because back in those days, um, they didn't marry for the same reasons we marry. You know, a lot of times we marry attraction and those kind of things. We fall in love, all that ooey gooey stuff. They wouldn't marry like for money reasons, financial concerns. They had dowries and things like that. And they would get engaged for profit and those kind of things. And so then when the marriage went sideways or the it was annulled before it ever really got off the ground, they would have all these lawsuits trying to settle issues like this man with his father's wife. And, and so there's a lot of those kind of concerns that Paul is calling them on the carpet and saying, this should not be. Stop it. He's, he's a lot more bold than I am tonight in here. He's calling them out. And, and as they're reading this, probably specific instances are popping in their minds and they're like, uh-oh. And their cheeks are getting red because they know he's talking to them. Okay, um, verse seven, back to 1 Corinthians 6. If you're in Matthew, you can hold your place there. We have one more passage we'll go to in Matthew in a few minutes. But back to 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 7 says this. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Isn't that interesting? Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? So if you remember just a couple weeks ago... um, I was talking about 1 Corinthians and and saying that in in Corinth you had the Olympic Games and you had the Isthmian Games. So competition was a part of life. So competing was a high, high value to the Corinthians. So here again, Paul's talking their language and he says this. 
the very fact that you even have a lawsuit going on. So you're, there's a lawsuit going on and both of you are trying to win. You're trying to win the suit. You're trying to win money. You're trying to win property or privilege. You're trying to win. And, but Paul says, the very fact that you even have a lawsuit going on means you lose already. You're already defeated. You've already lost the battle. You've already lost the fight. Before you've even started fighting, you've lost because you're going about it the wrong way. You're not trying to settle your issues among each other. You're going to court and that means you lost. So he's got their attention. You've already lost. And then he asked a very interesting question. Two of them. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be wronged? We just take it for granted that a value in society is fight for your right. Don't let anybody trample you. Don't let anybody walk over you. Me first. We just take that as a value. That's not a biblical value. That's not a Christ-like value. Paul says you're fighting for your way. You're fighting for your own rights. But why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? So when Peter says, hey, Jesus, if I forgive somebody seven times, that's enough, right? That's good, right? Because I, I, I was nice to them a couple times. I was gracious. I, I was overly gracious sixth and seventh time. But, but now, you know, enough's enough. I shouldn't be harmed. I shouldn't be cheated. I shouldn't be taken advantage of. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Seventy times seven. Over and over again. Yeah. Hey, I'm reminded of this uh, in Ephesians uh... It says, uh, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. And that kind of comes right into the play of what sure. you're talking about Absolutely. there. And Absolutely. It's, it's talking about one thing that we as believers should be doing all the time. Try to be more righteous and God-like. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I like in uh, Ephesians 2... 26, so my wife and I kind of live this life. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Absolutely. So let me just ask you a question um, while we're pausing. Why is it that we fight for our rights? What is it about us that we're going to try to be Avoid being wronged or avoid being cheated at all costs. Like that's the worst thing that could ever happen to us. Pride, yeah. Trying to feel important, is that what you said? Turn with me, uh, Matthew chapter 5. At the heart of it, 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 I mean, you guys have said it, it is pride. There is a control issue, right? Where, where when we're acting like this, fighting for our rights, it's because we think we're in control of ourselves. We think we're the boss. We think we've got to look out for number one. We think that's what it's about. Jesus, in a very interesting series of events in Matthew chapter 5, gives the Beatitudes. And, and there's a string of things where he says this phrase, You have heard that it was said. And he gives this old example. For instance, he says, You've heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. And so there's like this, this principle that's intact in there. But then he Almost takes it to a new level. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you even look lustfully at a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. 
So he raises the bar, but, but he doesn't just raise the bar. He actually gets to the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue is you, you don't commit adultery unless you first committed adultery in your heart by lust. And you, you've started down that pathway. So he does this over and over again and he gets to verse 43. I think that's the right verse. No, I'm sorry. Verse 38. Matthew five thirty-eight, And Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. The law of exact retaliation, the law of revenge. That, that's a principle that comes from the Old Testament. We see it. That was, that was how they operated very often. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Somebody hurts you, hurt them back. Somebody wrongs you, wrong them back. That's part of our culture. That's part of our society. We've adopted. But Jesus says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So, so there's a couple things going on that, that I really hope we can notice. And I don't have time to go example by example by example. But Jesus is saying this. On the one hand, there is the, the element of we don't put ourselves first. We don't just, just always seek ourselves. If, if, if there's somebody that says, hey, I want to take advantage of you. We're not always supposed to be concerned about ourselves. So there's that principle. But there's something even, even bigger going on here, I think. Um, there's this book called Kingdom Ethics that I read a few years ago. And the way that this author describes it, he says there's a transforming initiative that's going on in every single one of these stories. And the transforming initiative is this. If, if someone comes to you and they slap you on your right cheek, he says you, you, you get slapped and you go. He says you turn to him your left also. And in doing so, what you're doing is, 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 is you're surrendering the rights to yourself, yes. But you're also exposing the abuse of that person. And so it's almost a form of a nonviolent resistance kind of thing. He's not saying fall down, lay there, don't get up. He's saying just get back up and be there. If somebody says, hey, I'm gonna, I want to take you and I want to... Um, what's the next, next example? Wants to sue you and take your tunic. So they're like, I want to sue you. I'm going to take your tunic. He says, well, it's cold. Give him your tunic. But you know what? Also give him your cloak. And so you're standing there half dressed, freezing cold. And everybody else around sees that person is an abuser. So, so you're, taking, you're also taking a stand for human rights, not necessarily your own right. He's not saying be a doormat that everybody can take advantage of. He's not saying to the, to the wife who was abused by their husband, go back and keep being abused. That would, that would just be ridiculous and so unjust. So don't go to those extreme examples because we all, in our minds, we're like, well, that doesn't make sense. Why do I want to go get beat up and then give them the other cheek to beat me up? That's not what he's saying, those extreme examples of abuse. He's, he's talking to those of us who continually fight for our rights. Our world is all wrapped up in ourselves. And he's saying, guess what? Your life is not about you and your rights. And you were wronged. Because he's, he's telling us throughout Scripture that we're to do everything in our power to live at peace with other people. Because living at peace with other people gives us 
the validation that the words that we speak about Christ are true. And, and if you want to think about abuse, don't think about somebody being slapped on a cheek and then giving their other cheek. Think about our Savior hanging on a cross on a display. And what was it about him hanging on a cross displayed for all the world to see in Jerusalem? Was it just simply he said, I'm sacrificially laying down my life? Absolutely it was that. But it was also a testimony to everyone who knew the situation and the scene going on. Here is a just person who was unjustly tortured and condemned. And that's why a Roman soldier who's standing by the cross having seen the whole thing would look at him and recognize him as Lord and Savior. Because on the cross, as he hung up there, he was displaying the unjustness of this world and that he had come to bring justice and righteousness through his death and his resurrection. So verse 8. Trying to figure how far to go. Uh, Verse 8. Instead... You yourselves cheat and do wrong. You do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So, so just let's, let's get this in context. Paul says, you know, you're, why are you trying to avoid being wronged and you're suing? Why are you trying to avoid being cheated and you take somebody to court? He says, you, you are cheating and you are doing wrong and you're doing this to your brothers and your sisters, the ones who you're supposed to love, the ones you're supposed to be united with. And he says, don't you know that wrongdoers won't inherit the kingdom of God? And he gives this list of categories. Not, he's not just trying to give an exhaustive list of sins. He's giving these categories of, of idolaters and adulterers and sexually immoral and those kind of things. And he's giving these categories and he says, don't you know a person who's living that kind of life will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then look in verse 11. Beautiful, beautiful words. And that is what some of you were. That's what some of you were. And so here's what Paul is doing. He's reminding the Corinthians. He's reminding his audience. That's not who you are anymore. So stop living that way. You've been delivered. You've been changed. You've set free, been set free. You've got a past. And, and maybe some of you in here would say, I've got a past. And I'm not proud of it. I've got a story. And some of those names, they apply to me. But... Such were some of you. Such were some of us. But not anymore. And so we're not to live like that anymore. And and Paul says, But you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul says that you used to have this way of living. You used to have this way of thinking. You used to have this identity. But not anymore. Something changed. Aren't you glad something changed in your life? I'm not, I'm not sure you're excited about it tonight. Are you happy that, that you could say, I used to be this, but guess what? I'm not anymore. I used to have these things, but Jesus Christ saved me. And it's not that, that Jesus looks at this list and says, oh, the adulterers, the idolaters, oh, those are too bad for me. He says, those are the ones I died on a cross for. Those are the ones I want to extend my grace to. And those are the ones that I want to wash and sanctify 
and justify. And he wants to wash us. And that's a word that talks about new life. John 10, 10, where the Bible says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And John, Jesus also says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he wants to give us this new life and he washes us. And through faith and believing in him, he forgives our sins and he cleanses us. We're washed. It says also we're sanctified. This talks about a new way of, of, of acting, that if anyone is in Christ, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. So if you are in Christ, and Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you are in Christ, so act like it. Act like it. Obey the words. Pray and ask the, the Holy Spirit to empower you to live what you know you're supposed to do. So do it. Be sanctified. Act like the new creation that you are. Not in your own strength, but by allowing the Holy Spirit to live in you and through you. And he says, and some of you are justified. And what that means is our standing before God is not who we are. It's not based off of who we are. It's based off of who Jesus Christ is. And so when I stand up now, I don't stand up here as just Aaron, a, a, a person who tried to do really good and then God loved him. I, I stand up here as a man who God loves so much. He sent Jesus to die on a cross for my sins, for every shortcoming I will ever give. And I stand up here with an identity say, I am a son of God through Jesus Christ. And I am accepted, not because I've done something to be accepted, but because Christ has done something and he has accepted me. And so Paul reminds them of their identity to say, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. So now live like it and act like it and stand like it. And stop giving into the ways of the world. Stop falling prey to those traps that they had and, and the way that they're living. But through the Bible and the wisdom the Holy Spirit gives us in the word, line our lives up to God's ways. Not to what everybody else is doing around us. So my encouragement to you is to do the same. So that means if you have conflict, if there's a relationship in your life that's even after Sunday and Lynn's powerful message about getting the skeletons out of the closet, if you've not done that, what are you waiting on? What are you waiting on if you've not done that? Because if you say you have received the forgiveness of your sins from God, who are we to then hold somebody else responsible if we've been forgiven, we should freely forgive. And if there's something tonight that as we've been talking about lining our lives up to Scripture and, and, and just the Holy Spirit of God has been pinpointing this area of your life, what's the delay? Tonight is the, day to, the night to obey. Tonight's the time to just surrender and say, God, have your way in my life. So let me just pray for you real quick. God, I thank you for your word and I thank you for the, the simple truths of your word. And I thank you, God, that, that your ways are not our ways and your ways are so much higher. And so tonight we pray, God, that you would lead us into your ways. And God, help us to, to live the, the lives that you have called and saved us to live. Help us to, to act and to live out the truths of your scripture just of you, as you empower us to live. And help us to see ourselves justified. Not because of our 
activity or our effort because of our faith in who you are. So tonight I just pray that you would just help us to fall more in love with with Christ and understand on a deeper level the love that you have shown us, God. And Holy Spirit, fill us to live and to be who you have called us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys have a great night. Thank you.